G'day and welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. This is episode 776. Today I'm bringing you my interview with James Kirby. Today we're discussing compassion. I hope you enjoy. G'day and welcome to the Hidden Why podcast. How the heck are you guys? I hope you're freaking awesome. I hope you're having a great day wherever you are. Thanks for tuning in guys to this uh, weekly interview segment. Um, I've just got to share my gratitude and 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 how grateful I am that I get to uh, interview these guests every week and, and bring them on the show here. It's freaking phenomenal. Sometimes I've got to pinch myself uh, at the opportunity I get to you know explore um, these various fields with these these absolutely amazing people that dedicate such a big part of their life to um, doing their research and exploring their craft and working on their art. Um, the value that we can get from these interviews is phenomenal and today's of no exception. We're talking about compassion and compassion I think is a freaking phenomenal topic um, as we sort of discover in our conversation today is that the reason for compassion is to help alleviate the suffering and pain, not the suffering and pain only in our lives but the suffering and pain of the lives of others that we touch, the suffering and pain that exists in the world and that's a really important reason to be discussing to discuss compassion today. My guest today is James Kirby, he's a clinical psychologist and he's also a lecturer at the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland. He's also the co-director of the Compassionate Mind Research Group at the University of Queensland. Now he studies compassion at all levels, but he specifically examines compassion-focused therapy and evaluates compassionate mind training interventions. This is a freaking awesome interview, guys, about compassion. I really hope you get something out of it. Let me know what you think. Jump on to thehiddenwide.com and leave your comments there. Cheers and enjoy the interview. G'day, James, and welcome to the Hidden Wide Podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's um, well, you're not too far away either. Usually, people I talk to are over in the United States, but you're um, just down here in Brisbane, is it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, based in Brisbane um, at the University of Queensland. University of Queensland. So, tell us a little bit about um, your work, your line of work, and your line of research. I mean, it's all about compassion, and I'm really excited to have you on here to talk about that topic. I think it's uh, a great one. I think it's really important and something that we need more of potentially in the world as well. But yeah. In a nutshell, what, what is it all about, your work? <laughs> well, I'll do my very best. Um, well, I mean, I'm a clinical psychologist, so mm-hmm. I'm a practicing clinician, um, but I'm also um, an academic there at the University of Queensland. And my body of work is focused on understanding compassion. Um, I'm particularly interested in how we can apply a type of therapy called compassion-focused therapy uh, to help individuals who really struggle uh, with issues to do with self-criticism and shame. Uh, which can underpin many of our depressive and anxiety disorders. Um, and I also examine in a, in a range of different laboratory designs um, factors that could block people from being compassionate. So I'm interested in both how we can use compassion with sort of the dark side of our minds, uh, but I'm also interested in, in understanding what factors um, can block compassion responding as well. Interesting. There's a lot to get into in that, I'm sure. Yes, <laughs> But, I mean, one of the things with compassion is many people um, will have their own views of compassion. And this is actually something we would do in a group uh, program. Uh, So in a group program, for example, if we're going to be using compassion-focused therapy, one of the first questions we'll ask is, uh, when you think of compassion, what comes to mind? You know, what other qualities come to mind? And we kind of unpack it from that point. Oh, let's let's start there. Like when I think of compassion... Um, I think of caring and kindness mm. and empathy, um, understanding and being at level with another. Mm, mm. 
So this will be a short interview, I think. Um, <laughs> you kind of already got it. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I just I'd read your bio beforehand, so <laughs> I cheated. But no, um, no, they they certainly do come to mind. Are those so a caring, um, a kindness you mentioned, uh, keeping. Did you say um, a level mind or a level groundedness or something? Uh, what did I say? Something about level something. Yes, um, a level understanding, I suppose. Yeah. On the okay. same page, walk in each other's shoes, that sort of. The, the empathic aspect to it, I suppose. Um, absolutely. And so then we'd often expand on that and say, yes, there are absolutely things that come to mind, ways that we can be helpful um, perhaps to ourselves and also to others. Um, but then we'd go down so a little. So we've got what, little, um, external compassion and self-compassion or is it compassion and self-compassion? Yes. Um, so, I mean, you're one step ahead of me, really, which is great. Um, often we then talk about if you were to see someone who needed compassion, what would you be doing? So describe to me what it is that you'd be doing. So that's an external focus. So that's compassion directed outwards. Um, and often you get different sorts of things. You'll get things like, oh, you know, I try to be helpful. So I say, okay, what does helpful look like? And they go, oh, I might ask them, do they need help or what's the matter? So you're getting more specific. You're kind of asking them, the person to describe as if it's a video camera what it is that you'd be doing but then we flip it and then go okay well then if you were in pain or if you were suffering and that's actually key to compassion um the key aspect being that there's some kind of suffering that you're okay. trying, to, trying to alleviate uh and that doesn't you, have to be physical pain as far as suffering goes but any sort of turmoil anxiety yeah, etc that's a great point that's a great point um Yes, absolutely. So the, the pain or the suffering the person is experiencing um, could be physical, it could be emotional, um, it could be reactions to what they've been dealt, for example. Um, you know, there's, there's a, a Buddhist sutra that talks about the two arrows. The first arrow um, is the fact that we're, all living things must die. So as part of being a living species, uh, life, we will, we will die. We will, um, you know, grow uh, prosper, but eventually decay and, and pass away. Hmm. Um, the second arrow is our reactions to that. Um, and so that's sometimes referred to as dukkha um, in the Buddhist terms, um, which is uh, this idea around uh, perhaps striving and wanting and grasping for things that we can't have or are unable to, to perhaps obtain. Yeah. Um, so it's that how we react and respond to that. Um, and so one of the things is, if you are in physical pain, perhaps in a palliative care ward, we can't stop that, right? There is an end point. Um, but we can help with how you are responding or reacting to that. Mm. And um, sometimes in compassion-focused therapy, we talk about a third arrow, which can be also the shame that you feel as a result um, of your reaction to the pain that it is that you're going through, um, which can cause all sorts of difficulty. Uh, so then the next part is then asking, okay, well, if you were in pain, if you were suffering, uh, how would you like someone to respond to you? What would you like them to do? And typically the first thing we get is um, a space, <laughs> I'd like space to work it through, which is at odds to how they would help someone who is suffering. So it's Usually we try and get in there and hands-on and really involve, yeah? Oh, bingo. Yeah, exactly. And so what we try to get into is this idea of flow. So compassion has what we call a flow to it, and that flow is... Um, I can be compassionate towards another, 
Um, I can be I can be open to receiving compassion from another, uh, but I can also have a relating style of compassion towards myself. So we talk about a three flow, and we talk about that with actually um, all sorts of social emotions. Uh, you know, anger. How good are you at expressing anger? How good are you at receiving anger? How do you go being angry at yourself? Um, gratitude. Did, did you call that free flow or three? Oh, sorry, just the flow. It the always flow? has like three-directional flow. So it's how you exert it, how you bring it in or how you receive it and then how you internalize it? Yeah, how you relate to yourself. So, you know, you can have right. a self-to-self relationship. So, you know, we often comment, judge, uh, monitor what it is that we're doing. And so we can become quite attacking of ourselves and be quite angry with ourselves. But you can also be, um, in contrast, quite compassionate. Hmm. What got you into this 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 um, interest in studying compassion? I mean, obviously, you've got a psychological background, so there's got to be a connection mm. there. But mm. No, absolutely. Um, that's kind of where it started. Um, so, I mean, I was working uh, with families, actually. I was working with uh, grandparents and parents who were looking after their children, and we were using a lot of um, classic CBT kind of communication strategies um, to help with the parent-grandparent relationship because there can often be a bit of tension. Not always, of okay, course. Okay, so CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? Yes, cognitive yep. behavioral therapy. So these are kind of ways that you can, and they're very effective ways, um, that we can help with any um, perhaps distress or anxiety or tension um, that someone might be experiencing. And uh, we were using these techniques um, to help with the parent-grandparent relationship um, but in a couple of uh, trials we did, so randomized controlled trials, we, um, we didn't get any improvement on the relationship. And so um, I started doing more digging and research, and I stumbled across this guy called Professor Paul Gilbert, um, who uh, is one of the world's leaders in the treatment of depression. Um, and he founded and, and developed the, the compassion-focused therapy um, to help with individuals with uh, depression. Right. And, um, because what was happening, I was finding in a lot of the discussions between parents and grandparents, there was a lot of hostility, attacking, um, and judgment about what each other were doing. <laughs> and the classic, the classic was this. I mean, the classic was this. Um, I mean, there's lots of different. I mean, this again isn't always the case. So these are with families that were struggling. Um, uh, the parent um, would be doing something with the child. Um, really struggling, perhaps with a bit of child difficulty. The grandparent would jump in and, and try to help, but in so doing, the parent saw that as interfering. Um, and then the parent would tell the you know the grandparent, "Hey, just let me handle. I've got this." And then they're like, "Yes, but you're doing it all wrong. You should have done this. So you got again early." Right. Yeah. And the grandparent knew that um, deep down they would have liked to have sat back and let the parent do it, um, but they can't help themselves. <laughs> Yeah. The number, the number one thing parents dislike is unsolicited parenting advice from their own parents. So is that the compassion coming out, the grandparents wanting to, you know, make sure they're doing well? Yeah, kind of. And effectively bit. they're not really helping at all? <laughs> yeah, so we would call that unwise compassion. Okay. So sometimes you can jump in and rescue. So just say if you were to be drowning in the Brisbane River, which isn't far off from here, I might think to myself, oh, my goodness. You're in trouble. I must save you. And I jump into the river. But then midair, as I'm jumping in, I think to myself, oh, goodness, I can't swim. All of a sudden, we've got two people who need help. That's unwise. Yes, exactly. I mean, the intention's good. I'm trying to save your life. Um, but I haven't thought about it wisely, about what it is that I could actually do that could be helpful. 
So we often have a mantra in compassion focused therapy, which is um, how can I be helpful rather than hurtful or harmful or cause any unnecessary uh, harm mm. um, or careless harm or hurting. Then you can apply that not only to how you relate to yourself and others, but leadership can use that, business models can use that. I mean, it can be applied quite generally. But that's an interesting point because we're talking about, and this is, I think, the point that you raised before was there's got to be some sort of pain or suffering happening Ooh. for us to um, bring about compassion. And that could be um, pain and suffering in, within some sort of level of shame or um, anxiety or uh, feeling of uh, lack of self-worth, I suppose. That's where we could raise uh, self-compassion externally if we see some sort of um, mental or physical sort of uh, pain or suffering in another. Um, mm. We could you know, bring out compassion there. And then we have to really try and bring out compassion in a way that's not going to either aggravate, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, but not going to aggravate that pain and suffering any further, but mm. also not create some some other sort of pain or suffering through the, the behaviours or actions that we take. I mean, yes, exactly. And, and this is where it gets a little bit more complicated. So um, compassion can seem quite simple on the surface, but it gets really complicated. So, for example, if I'm working clinically with someone, say if they've got some kind of phobia, specific phobia, for example, say fear of flying, perhaps. Okay, yep. Um, Actually, I've got a fear of heights. Excellent, let's work with that. So you've got a fear of heights. One of the things that we would do in the treatment of um, helping assist with uh, managing fear of heights is exposing you to heights. Yeah. Now, in that moment, you will be suffering. I am engaging with you, if you were willing, in a moment of real distress for you. And in therapy, we'll get people to talk about the things that really distress them. So part of it is we're not looking just for immediate, hedonic, if you will, pleasure or or a blissful state. It's kind of getting to this uh, understanding of what would give you meaning or purpose and recognizing that um, it will take effort. And as you go along, it's not purposeless suffering you're going through. It's actually purposeful suffering. So if I go to the gym and want to work on my muscles, for example, I I want to feel some resistance. You know, I want it to be difficult because then my body will respond. If I go in and it's easier, my body won't respond. And it's the same when we're dealing with many of these um, mental life difficulties that we can have. A tough love. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, (laughs) Is um, it the same thing (laughs) or are they they quite different maybe? Yeah, I wouldn't want to do it in a way – um, which was white knuckling, you know, just pushing you. I'd want to do it in a way which is encouraging you to engage. Well, like that example before you said, you know, before I jump into the water to save someone, maybe you could let them struggle a little bit, see if they can figure out how to, you know, keep their head above water. That is an excellent point. So one of the things could be, in fact, when I notice it, you're actually not struggling in the water at all. You're actually doing fine. Um, and I just interpreted that as, oh, my God, I must rescue, I must do something. That's but what I, I would do. Like if yeah. it was my daughter in the water, I'd go jump in quick and my wife would oh, sit back and go, no, no, let them go. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I do a lot of uh, research with children and um, a lot of the experiments I, I do, I test on my little boy <laughs> to begin with. Um, and he's a oh, three-year-old. cool, lucky boy. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, we had him in the lab the other day and, and part of this experiment required him to be in the room by himself. You know, the room's fine, it's harmless. Um, there are lots of different toys in there and stuff. But you could see him getting quite anxious that no one else was there with him. And my own mother was there as well because she wanted to watch. And um, and she just got into a panic. I'm like, Mum, it's okay. Just let him go. Let's see what he does. Let's explore what happens here. 
um, knowing that if anything does get real bad, I can just walk, open the door and it'll be cool. Um, so part of it is when we're working with people with difficulties, let's see how far we can go, but knowing that we can pull out and it's okay. See, what I have problems with with that, and I, I get it, but the problem I have is what sort of mental things that we can't see could be created through that, even if it's a moment of extra stress or turmoil, turmoil that they didn't need to go through. What, mm. what could that create longer term? That's what sometimes I think about. And I listened to a, a guy the other day talking about leadership and, and really mm. that that hardness you've got to have towards, you know, bringing up kids, letting them do it, telling them they need to do it and being really firm with that is, is quite great for them uh, over the long run. But sometimes I wonder where's that balance? Oh, it's tricky. It's tricky. You'll make mistakes, there's no doubt. But what would be the fear? What would be your fear of doing that? Hmm. Well, just if there's any sort of mental scarring from that longer term, you know. Um, Like, for example, if my kid's upset and not listening and really out of control, um, I might put him in the garage and say, you go in here. And the garage is dark, it's not not very nice, and I wonder, well, is that going to affect them longer term? Well, um, I mean, if that's your first point of call every time you, your child's having difficulty in and, garage. It's, and it's the only way you ever respond, yeah, you will, could cause um, some difficulties in the relationship for mm. sure. Mm. There's no doubt. Um, this, was, this was, to set the context, is nothing to do with that, um, the experiment we're doing in the lab. Mm. Um, but it is a case of, uh, with children, giving them opportunities to experience um, different distress. So, for example... But right. in a safe in a safe way, of mm. course. So the intention is not to make them feel um, upset or um, intentionally cause them any harm. That yeah, is by okay. no means the key. But the key is we do have to learn with setbacks. We do have to learn um, to deal with disappointments. But you can do it in a very um, compassionate way. Uh, so, for example, you still validate their emotional distress. Yes, I, I can see you're really frustrated. Are you, are you frustrated? Like you connect with them. Yeah, it is frustrating when we don't get what we want. Hey, like mm. you still connect with that. Absolutely. Validate yeah. their experience. Okay. Um, so there is a difference between being firm, which many can see as being almost. See, some people see assertiveness as being the middle ground between like being aggressive and submissive, which it is just not. Um, assertiveness is coming from a, a caring foundation where you're interested in not causing harm to both the other and yourself. So you can be a certain, okay, I know you want that other bowl of ice cream, but tonight we're not going to have it. Hmm. And so it's remaining calm um, at, the, at those points. And that's where parenting can be really tricky uh, because the kiddo will turn the volume up. And most parents learn, well, in order to manage the volume going up, I need to turn my volume up. Um, but that's where, that, hmm. yeah, yeah, or, or possibly, and that's fine too. It, you know, the, the thing is, you're going to at different points. You can't always. No, absolutely. Thing <laughs> all the time. I mean, that's impossible. Um, and there'll be sometimes you don't know what the right way will be to go. Um, part of it is 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 okay. Let's try it this time and see how we go. Hmm. I mean, but part of it is you want them to know the kiddo um, that you. Uh, are there to act as what we sometimes call a safe haven. So if things do become particularly distressed, they can come to you uh, so you can help calm them down because they need help regulating their own emotions. Um, The second part is uh, you can act as a secure base so you can encourage them to take risks. Yep. Um, That's really important. So uh, learning 
to ride a bike, for example, you fall over, you hurt yourself. What's the parent do? Well, it gets close. Are you okay? Where are you hurting? Yeah, you're trying really well. Let's have another crack. Um, and you're using a, a, a caring, encouraging voice. You're getting close. You might use touch. You don't come in with a, a firm kind of, yeah, that was wrong. Why do you keep doing that for? God, what's wrong with you? <laughs> don't do, you don't do that kind of responding. But the issue is the child's learning that riding a bike is dangerous. Yes, yeah. And so how do we help encourage them in those moments? Well, we use what we call affiliative behaviours. So that's getting close, touching, tone of voice, all of these things. And what that does is create confidence for the child. It encourages them, okay, it's all right, I can do this, and they'll go again. Hmm. Um, So you're trying to act as that secure base um, to allow them to go out and try things. Yeah, so it gives them a, a level of confidence that there's safety there, there's care, but also a level of encouragement that you have uh, that confidence in their ability, basically. Oh, totally. And then you take joy if they have success. Yeah. You yep. know, so you know, that's critical. So if the, if the child does have success, yes, you enjoy it too. Um, that's one of the key aspects. And that's the same in compassion. You know, compassion is interested very clearly in, this idea of being aware and sensitive to suffering in self and in others and then having a commitment to try to alleviate or prevent it as best you can. Hmm. Okay, there's a lot to, lot more to unpack here. <laughs> <laughs> With the, um, I suppose, what is the importance? I mean, in, in that context, we're talking about, you know, raising children. Obviously, sure. having that level of compassion there is fantastic for that and it's very important. Um, where do you see compassion being most important? I mean, obviously, it's probably related to your work, but in, in the world as a whole, where does compassion really come into it? Why is this such an important topic? <laughs> oh, God, that's a million-dollar question. I mean, um, it, de- it really depends uh, upon the context, but um, compassion uh, at its core is this motivation of wanting uh, to help reduce the suffering that we all experience in the mm. world. And that, okay. and that can be, as you mentioned, um, individual. It can be on a systems level. Um, it can be within a um, uh, beyond just our species. We can start to talk about how it might affect other species on the planet, for example, and the impacts that we can have on them as well. Yeah. Um, so we call it, it's an orientation to life that can just totally change how you start to engage with the world around you. Yeah. So like you said before, I mean, you talked about um, Buddhism there and you sort of mentioned that life is suffering. There's, you know, um, what do you say? Living things all die. Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. You've got but, 25 you know, to 30,000 days if you're lucky. Yeah, like if life is suffering, then compassion is our ability to, and like you said, the second arrow, managing how we mm. deal with that, react to that and live with exactly. that. And yes, so that's, exactly. yeah, both individually and externally as well. Okay, cool. So that makes it really important then, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, I think <laughs> I think so. But, I mean, the human mind has been created in such a way that it causes us tremendous difficulty. Um, and so when we work with people, we often try to talk about, hey, it's not your fault that you experience these things. You didn't create your mind, right? Mm. You didn't create the ability to feel anger, but you feel anger, right? Well, you, you think about the suffering and the pain that we experience on a day-to-day level. A lot of it is self-created. A lot of it is from our mind. Yes, but did you create anger? Did you create your ability to feel that? No. Exactly. So is it your fault that you feel angry? No, I guess not. 
<laughs> that's important, right? You know, some people grow up in environments that make some of these emotions incredibly important for them. Others um, can become very fearful of these emotions. If you're being raised at home, uh, where as a child, if you get angry or frustrated, your parent responds to you by saying, oh, I'll give you something to get angry or upset about and give you a fucking history. With your anger, you start to avoid showing it because why? You get punished. Hmm. And so people can really struggle expressing anger. And so their adaptive coping strategy in those environments is just to stay unheard, unseen, don't cause a ruckus. And if you do cause any uh, attention, negative attention towards yourself, whose fault is it? Well, it's your own. It's not your parents' fault for hitting you because you're a child and there's nothing you can do. It's really tricky. Um, and so in those instances, um, you know, uh, the child is doing their best to manage the, the situation in which they have. But, a co- but unfortunately, it becomes a long-term difficulty with how they feel and express uh, anger. Hmm. Uh, and it's not their fault, Right. Um, and so what you're trying to do is trying to get them to become more comfortable with that emotion. So what about compassion? How is that um, developed, I suppose? Is it developed or is it something that we have naturally born with? We're all compassionate beings? That's a terrific question. It, there are different definitions of compassion and different models. And in our particular model, um, which is an evolutionary model, we say that um, as a mammal, uh, one of our key motivations is to care. So we have a caring motive. So what we mean by that is... Why would that matter? Well, that matters greatly because we have children that are dependent on us. So um, as a result, we have to put huge amounts of care into raising our offspring. So we have one child who's completely uh, dependent. Um, As a young baby pops out, um, they can't really do all that much. (laughs) So is that only caring towards our own offspring then? Oh, I mean, that's one of the issues, absolutely. So I we mean, can if it very- came from that for that reason, obviously we can then use it for other purposes too. But Well, yes. I mean, again, you kind of um, already know what's coming. Um, so we have this capacity. So all mammals, typically their parental investment strategy is to have a few young at a time, usually one or two in the case. Um, it, for humans, one at a time, but in other mammals, um, one or two at a time, kangaroos will one or two koalas, one, and and so on. And you spend a number of years investing in helping that child grow. Now, as humans, we'll spend about 15-odd years, and one of the major aspects of that is to help with the growth of the brain. Um, So we do a huge amount of growing uh, outside of the womb. Um, Whereas, for example, uh, reptile friends, um, the mum will lay... 100, 120 eggs on the beach, never see them again. When the baby turtles hatch, they've got everything they need uh, to make a success in this world. However, only one in a thousand of those will survive um, and make it to adulthood. Uh, Whereas with our uh, uh, parental investment strategy, we put a great amount of investment in our uh, offspring, which are very few, and that helps keep us alive. That's helped our species. Mm, mm. However, as you said, though, um, as we get old, as we age and mature, and our brains grow and develop, we can start to draw upon our cognitive capacities and take that caring motivation that we've got and start to use it for more what we would argue compassionate endeavors. Um, so we can knowingly and deliberately and purposefully try to um, cultivate compassion within ourselves and recognize other people that we would typically not help and we, would, we could help them. 
or we could spend many years learning how to be more helpful, take a doctor, for example, so we can take that and apply it and help others for life. Now, as far as we know, we don't see other animals do that. So if you use, um, say, getting fit, if a lion is running around the savannah and can't get an antelope, the lion doesn't sit back and think, oh, God, I've got to do a bit more training. I'm getting a bit slow around <laughs> around the grasslands whereas as humans we'll judge that we'll monitor that yeah i need to do a bit more work to get a bit better and that can be the same with compassion so we would argue yeah you see caring behavior in other animals but we wouldn't call it necessarily compassionate behavior but in humans we would because we're drawing upon our social intelligence to knowingly and purposely do things to help another okay it's interesting i'm just trying to think of do you, I mean, you've probably done many studies where you see compassion in young children naturally. Mm. Mm. Can you tell us mm. about some of those studies? Yeah, yeah, and we would say that's more caring, more okay. helpful. I mean, one of the key things, and you touched on this at the beginning with compassion, is empathy. So you'd want an element of empathy. So empathy is being able to recognize that your mind is different to my mind. Yeah. And then I can get a sense of what it is that you might actually be feeling, what it is that you might actually be thinking. And if I can bridge into that and try to get a guess as to what it is that you could be thinking and feeling, I can then use that in ways that could be helpful or caring or compassionate. Um, whereas children really struggle um, before age four, and this is what we call theory of mind, um, to recognize that what you experience is different to what they experience. Right, okay. Um, you know, for example, children won't recognize themselves in, in a mirror until they're about 18 months. I mean, that's a, that's phenomenal, right? Yeah, I find yeah. that just mind-blowing. Yeah. <laughs> like, they don't. So you put a dot on their nose, and you put them in front of the mirror, and it's only at eighteen months that they'll try to take the dot off their nose. I mean, that is just amazing. Um, uh, I find so their mind, their brain is developing, um, and they haven't quite got that capacity yet. Um, and so it comes on at about age four. Now, before then, yeah, children are definitely helpful. They're definitely caring, but there are also limits to it, right? So, for example, at ages four and five, children will say. Yes, it's important to share my toys uh, equally with others, but then they won't share them <laughs> equally with yeah. the others. But at seven and eight, when social norms become more embedded and they've learnt those things more, they'll say yes, I'll, and they'll have more self-control, for example. They'll say yes, it's important to share equally, and then they will actually share equally. Mm. And it's just because they haven't got the capacity to do it yet. But so much in, t- in terms of our parenting, we can go, oh, God, what's wrong with my kid? He's not sharing. It's like, well, there's nothing wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> they just haven't got the skill yet. <laughs> just give it time. Um, so, yeah, we say, um, yeah, you'll see caring behavior in children. So, for example, there's a great set of studies done by um, Michael Tomasello and Felix Wernikin. You can look this up on YouTube, actually. Uh, just type in um, either both of their names or um, type type in children helping studies. Yeah. Uh, into Google. So this is children up to the age of four or beyond as well? Well, these ones are with real youngsters. These are like with 18 months, 15 months. So why is there a level of caring at that age up until four where they're not really understanding why they're caring? Yeah, again, we would say that's because we're mammals. So we're born as mammals. And so as a result, that's just the biosocial motive we have that can be turned on and off. Now, we don't have much control over what turns it on and off. Things in our environment can just turn it on and off. Um, and so, for example, if we see someone who is perhaps crying, you can have different responses to it. Some children will look and go, oh, what's going on there? Um, and uh, they might just uh, either 
at them intently or they might you can see them trying to work out what, what's going on but others will get very scared of that and, and run away yeah, and so okay. there's different types of responses to a threat signal but this is one of the key things so our species is really quite peculiar in that regard so you hear a distress signal could be crying or whatever it might be and we turn towards it and approach it and we say that comes largely from um, uh, uh, our, our parasympathetic system so through the process of methylation, for example, um, through our autonomic nervous system, we have this parasympathetic system, um, which can help regulate that um, uh, autonomic fight-flight response, um, which allows us to manage that distress and turn towards and try to, get, try to understand what it is that I can do to be helpful at this point in time. Uh, so that's one of the big theories. Interesting. Um, Stephen Porges does a lot of work on that. I mean, we've done work in the labs, for example, whereas as soon as you're um, exposed to something of threat, um, what we see happen is uh, your heart rate variability will drop. And heart rate variability is an important physiological marker uh, for stress and health and a whole range of different things. Uh, whereas for mothers who are high on compassion, what we find is their heart rate variability stays high, which is good. Hmm. It's a peculiar irregularity in our health. Um, and what they'll do is rather than get reactive, um, they'll stay with their child, not get aggressive and uh, not get hostile or attacking towards their child in, in paradigms where they, they're not being able to complete a task properly. Whereas those who have uh, their high rate variability drop, they start to get annoyed with their kids and frustrated and start to have a go. Is that why mums are generally better? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I mean, compassion shows itself differently. So context is key. So, yeah, perhaps mums because they've yeah, got that instinct there, man. It's got to be. They've got a really important nurturing instinct because it's guaranteed that it's their kid because it's come from their body. Um, but uh, men will show compassion differently again. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. Where perhaps women perhaps might, might show it differently. Um, so there's always contextual factors. But this is the important so, uh, social uh, dance that you engage in. So you see someone, so you call someone who's distressed, say they've had a, their father pass away, you call them up to check on how he's going. You call that ring, hey, how you going? Just trying to see how you're doing. You all right? And if they respond with, oh, God, not again. Just leave us alone. I just need a break. I'm sick of talking about it. And they hang up on you. If you react by that, by saying, oh, the bastard. I'm just trying to help him. What the hell's wrong? You know, screw that. I'm not going to help him again. <laughs> I'm not mm. going to give him a call. Um, you, you're making it about you and not about the person who's suffering. And oh, so which is so natural to do, isn't it? Very much so, very much so. So part of it is some people might not respond to your compassionate helping in the way that you want. Will that then stop you helping them again? For many people, it does. And that's why we say the commitment thing is really quite important. So is this where compassion falls off the rails as we um, are brought up? Well, it can a little bit. Because or is it just think, not cultivated? Well, yeah, a bit of both. Um, some of the research we're finding is because we've got such competitive context, Competition immediately acts as a blocker to compassion because it creates a me versus you. Yeah. And so I'm unlikely to help you because um, it, would, it would therefore mean that I would lose my advantage perhaps. Um, if I see you struggling with the task, um, well, that's good for me because I might get ahead and get promoted or whatever it might be. Um, and so it really turns it off. So we, we've done a number of studies now with four-year-olds, for example, 
And when they have to give up winning a, a reward to help uh, a puppet who's distressed, they'll never help them. But if they've got enough extra pieces, they'll immediately always share with the puppet. So when we have access to it, we typically will be helpful straight away. But as soon as uh, there'll be a sacrifice on a reward or something for our, us to win, uh, we just, it just gets turned off. It's not that they're not compassionate. They will feel it, but they just don't do it. Hmm. Um, and so there'll be blockers. So different tribalism is a big one. As to whether or not you think the person deserves it, so, for example, you know, oh, yeah, but they deserve to be in pain. You know, they're the ones who did it to themselves. Um, if you like the person, that's another big one. You know, you might not like a person. You see them suffer. You might actually take a bit of joy <laughs> out of that. <laughs> the Germans have a term called schadenfreude to express that. Um, you take the light in someone else's pain or suffering. Um, so, yeah, I mean, likeness. These are all dimensional. So these factors will influence mm. if you are going to be compassionate towards someone. Right. But there's that, that sense of compassion that comes through, you know, wanting to um, cooperate with others but mm. also to help our own situations mm. Mm. in that mm. group. But then there's also that tribalism, I guess, which is cooperation in our group's fine, but with the other group it's not, not accepted. But when we're doing a study that's doing this exact point that you say, so we've got this task um, where uh, uh, – we get two groups, we randomise the participants to one of two groups, these are adults, um, and they're given a whole stack of Lego, and we tell them, you've got to put the Lego pieces together in such a way with these couple of different pieces, and if you construct it in that way, that constitutes a piece of food. Now, your job is to create as much food as you can uh, so no one starves. Hmm. Um, and so we have two different groups, we give them two fictional countries, we make them up, uh, they're they're equal in terms of their descriptions, um, but what we what we change is one group has a lot of the required pieces, so they can make lots of food, and the other group has very few. Hmm. So it's an it, what we call these an inequality paradigm, and so what we want to see, and then we give them five minutes to create as much food as they can, and what we want to see is is what they do. I mean, so we've got a high resource group who's got a stack of Lego. They can never use all of the pieces in the five minutes. They make about 60 pieces of food on average, but they could make up to 90. And then our low-resource group can only make 20. And so they finish after a couple of minutes, and we just want to see what it is that they're going to do, you know, how are people going to react and respond. Yeah. Um, because the only instruction we've given is create as much food as you can. Mm. Um, and what happens is there's no sharing. <laughs> Everyone helps. Of course not. The high resource doesn't give across any. Low resource doesn't ask for any. Uh, because as soon as you have an unequal paradigm, there's this sense of competition again. Mm. Um, so you just work with what you've got. And you might share within your group like you're saying, but you don't share across the groups. Yeah, wow. Well, it's crazy, isn't it, really? Oh, and that, but that's not their fault. Like, you know, we've tested hundreds of uh, participants through this now. This is what happens. So it's very important that... When we work with these kinds of things, you know, we don't shame the individual in terms of how they respond. This is just how, how humans operate. But that's but yeah. how we've been, you know, just giving that um, instruction. Mm. Your group, you're a group, this is mm. what you've got to do. We're, we're already segregating them and saying you're both separate. Mm. And, and even though we're not implying that you're in competition, which you mm. didn't, immediately exactly. you think you are. Oh, exactly. And that's your brain doing a shortcut. Yeah. It's very easy to do that. 
Um, and we do that all the time. Hmm. And so it's not your fault that you do. It's just how we operate. So the idea is, is can we start to recognize that? Can we step back and recognize it as best we can? Or do we have to change aspects of the system so that it can help rather than block? So can we help facilitate compassion helping um, or cooperation, whatever it might be, as mm. opposed to stifle it? Well, I guess that's where your work comes into it is, is trying to cultivate more compassion and, and bring about more facilitation of, of compassion. Um, just a quick question on compassion because I can see reasons why we'd want to, you know, show compassion towards another for the suffering and, um, and the pain, the alleviation of that. At what point or is there a point where it is, is not about the person being compassionate? Because I sort of feel that maybe that everyone that is compassionate externally towards another potentially is doing it for some sort of self-gain. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. I mean, that's sometimes referred to as uh, a warm glow. Um, and again, uh, it's just something we experience. So when we engage in helpful behavior and are helpful towards someone, um, we'll often experience what you call the warm glow. Um, now, you didn't choose <laughs> to feel that. Again, it's just the human body doing what the body does. Um, and so... Is it selfish or isn't it? I mean, in, in some respects, um, you know, the idea is we do everything we can in order to survive and reproduce, right, on some, so, basic, yeah. on okay. some basic level. Hmm. Um, that, you know, that's the aim of the game. That's the aim for everyone, every species on the planet. Um, so you're trying to do that. Um, and if you're trying to genuinely help someone in, this, in, their, in, in, in a moment of pain or suffering gotcha. hmm. and you help them, but you also experience a warm glow. Is that a fault? Is that a well? Fold? I guess it's the intent behind the compassion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's some there's, there's been some interesting research in that. Like some researchers have found this isn't my work. Um, I think it's Elizabeth Dunn's work in the states um, has found in regards to volunteering. If you volunteer because you genuinely want to volunteer and help people, it's associated with a whole range of important outcomes. Um, however, if you're looking at helping people because you know that <laughs> you get those good outcomes, <laughs> uh, so you're doing it for your own selfish reasons, you don't get the outcomes. Um, so as you said, hmm. the intention is really very important. But and there's a lot of people that go out there and say, you know, volunteer, help other people. It will make you feel good. And so people that are depressed go, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. I'll go out there and try that. So they're actually doing it to try to help themselves good, even if they genuinely want to help others. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's been, I've it's done a lot and others have as well. When it comes to depressed people, they still feel caring. They're still a caring, trustworthy person, mm. but they just don't think they can compete in the world. They just don't think that they, um, uh, they can win. They think they're a loser. Um, but when you, ask them, you, you, when you ask them, you, are you a caring person? Are you a trusting person? They go, yeah, yeah, I'm caring. I'm trusting. You know, I want the, the best for people. But when it comes to do you think you can um, compete, win, succeed, they say no. So that's two different motivations. So one's a competitive motivation and one's a compassionate motivation, um, which is an important point you make. I can hear your, um, your kid in the background there. <laughs> yes. There was something else you mentioned there before we embarked on that with the depression with um, – Caring and competitive behaviors. Doing, doing compassion out of um, yeah, selflessness and selfishness. 
Yeah, yeah, because this is where some of our motivations can blend. So we've got a term called submissive compassion. So that's when someone tries to be helpful towards somebody to be liked. Hmm. So you're trying to reduce someone else's distress, so it's compassion, but you're doing it for the intent to be liked or to be accepted by that group or to be not kicked out by that group. Hmm. So we call that submissive compassion. At the same time, you can also have really competitive compassion where, um, oh, I'm the best at, at compassion. No one's better than me <laughs> at <laughs> compassion. Oh, you thought that was compassion? Wait till you see this. And so that's where it can become, of course, tricky. But that's being compassionate, I mean, to fit in again. I mean, we're, we're designed to try and fit into that tribe and, you know, mm. I guess submissive compassion is for that reason. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, let me be compassionate so these guys can accept me into their group. Exactly. Unfortunately, that makes you very vulnerable to depression. Is that right? Yeah. So if you're, if you're always doing things for others in that way, um, that's seen as a strategy, as you said, quite, quite brightly to get you into a group. But as a result, you're always putting others before yourself and you still feel like you're an outsider. It's a big vulnerability factor for depression. Yeah, okay, makes also sense. Also anxiety, also anxiety. Yeah. Uh, so those two tend to go hand in hand, of course. What about, so how do we, let's, um, I know we're, we're going well into the time here. How do we now cultivate compassion then? So what can we do as an individual to be more, to cultivate more self-compassion and also compassion uh, externally? Yeah, that, uh, great question. I mean, there, there's a lot of different things one can do. Uh, so, for example. Maybe a uh, few key we, things that you've found in your research that we could all listen right now and then take away into our daily practice and, and really start to develop this compassion oh excellent uh, so this is a, this is a technique i do every morning so it really transforms i'm a real grumpy person in the morning i'm not a morning right. person <laughs> i'm not a morning person at all and as i was learned i became a dad i was like god i've got to become a better morning person because this kiddo's going to write you know wake up early and whatnot and so this is this is a strategy we we use and we use in therapy a lot of uh, all the time. It's called compassion under the doona or under the duvet if you're in the UK. Sounds a bit dirty. But, <laughs> yeah, makes it a bit more fun. <laughs> I'm mentioning it to my wife. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, oh, that's fabulous. So, when, so the, the idea is when you wake up in the morning, the first thing is just connect to your breath. Just yep. notice the rise and the fall of your breath. We do what we call soothing rhythm breathing. How does so that work? That's just a style of breathing where you're trying to create a rhythm of the breath where you're breathing in for five, out for five, but you could change it. So it might be in for four, out for six, you know, in for five, out for seven. But the idea is you keep that constant rhythm. You don't change it. So you work with something that is a good rhythm for you, but then you stay, uh, right for you, sorry, but then you stay with that and that's called the rhythm. Yep. And so the research shows, yes, if you want to get activation of your parasympathetic system with breathing practice, Creating a stable rate and keep, keeping that steady rhythm, whether it's a smoothness on the in and a smoothness on the out, that's where you're most likely uh, to allow it to happen. Hmm. So you do that just for a minute or so, a minute or two. Yep. And then we say, welcome yourself to the morning. And so my name is James. So I would, in my mind's eye, say, good morning, James, in a friendly voice um, as opposed to a neutral voice. And so I do a slight uh, kind of, smile to myself just slightly smile to myself um and in my internal friendly voice welcome myself 
And then after that point, I would then go, okay, if I was to be at my compassionate best, what would I do? So I'd imagine. So what would I, how would I relate to my wife? What would I say to her? What would I do? How would I go about my day? Hmm. And so creating that intention from the beginning of the morning. And often what I found that has meant for me is then when I open my eyes, this is just for a couple of minutes, my first action of the day as opposed to check my phone for email is turn over and kiss my wife. Yeah. So we have a contact point. So it's a compassionate affirmation basically. Very much so. Compassionate intention affirmation to start your day. Hmm. And that's something you can engage with at any point. So in clinical practice, what I find is a lot of individuals will get an app, say, for example, and there's a whole host of wonderful mindfulness apps, and they'll do their mindfulness in the morning. They'll even get up earlier to fit it in, and they're already doing so much, but then they'll even wake up earlier to fit it in. Um, and then they'll go downstairs, and the kids are going crazy. And what, what, what the client will say to me is, is something like, oh, they've just destroyed my mindfulness. You know, I was feeling so relaxed. <laughs> they've just destroyed it. And in those I get days, like that sometimes. Oh, of course, it's natural, right? <laughs> it totally, I'm the same. Um, but in those moments then, what becomes is, oh, damn, I'm not doing my mindfulness again till tomorrow, you know, because um, that's when you do it. That's the habit you form. But what we suggest is you need to be able to bring this on when you need it. And so when you have that argument, that disagreement, or something bad happens that you're not particularly happy about, at that point, can you engage in what we just did? Hmm. Can you connect with your breath? Well, you know, be, have a practice, friendly, yeah. friendly yeah. relationship. Okay, hey, James. Hey, mate. What's going on? <laughs> okay, now if you're at your compassionate best, what would you be doing? What would you have said? What do you think she was thinking? Okay, let's slow it down. What would you like to do next? Okay, I'm going to have a crack and see how we go. Or maybe I'll give a little bit of space. But it's a way to help reconnect as opposed to stay away, avoid yeah, but this is the thing like um, with a meditation practice or that sort of affirmation even, it, it takes time to build on, but you will notice it over the course of you know, 12 months or whatever it might be that you're always it's always coming to mind and it just becomes part of your natural focus and then, then you can be better at bringing it into any moment regardless of what's happened. Yeah, it's right. It's about trying to create some healthy habits and, um, and and drawing upon whatever the person's bringing to the table to help bring that into the moments that when they need it. And, and people come up with the most uh, amazing ideas on how to prompt themselves and help themselves to draw upon it when they need it. Okay. What um, what have you got other routines or practices that you'd, you'd <laughs> use to cultivate this compassion? Because that's a great, that's a cracker. That's a good one. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of our sort of standard ones. I mean, the other ones also, of course, and there's, there's plenty of these out there, is, is to get engaged in an actual compassion meditation. So, I mean, in Buddhism, it's often referred to as the four immeasurables, and the four immeasurables are uh, compassion, of course, um, equanimity, um, appreciative joy, and um, oh, what's the other? A loving kindness. And of course, a lot of the research has found doing loving kindness, mm. which is wishing well for others, you know. Um, so I would wish you to be happy. I wish you to be healthy. Now, see, this um, one I struggle with because mm. sometimes it feels so fake. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, totally. For sure. That, that's a common response. Yeah. So, what do we do about that? Like, I'm, I'm just sitting there, I'm doing my meditation, I'm suddenly <laughs> going, okay, I'm going to give some love to James there today. Yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> well, I mean, yes. I mean, part of it is to, to firstly, okay, 
what's hollow about it. That's what we did do in therapy. We explore that. Um, but another part of it is, um, well, don't use those phrases. Use phrases that mean in, that have an intent to you. Um, so sometimes some people say it brings up memories for me of prayer at school and of all this stuff going on in the background. So you might unpack that a little bit, but you might not stick with it then. Don't stay with loving kindness. Does it just, but is it something about it that, you know, through practice and, and doing it repetitively over a period of time, you actually, cause I can understand again, doing it in repetition, you start to automatically feel it's more genuine. Whereas doing it first for the few weeks or months or whatever it might be, you get saying, this is a bit weird. It doesn't feel mm-hmm. right. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, and then you're cultivating mm-hmm. it to make you feel more, you're faking it until you make it. Yeah, a bit of that. Yeah, of course. I mean, one of the things we'll do straight up, and I've done research on this as well, as has others. If you've got strong fears to kindness and compassion um, and you ask someone to do it, um, they'll either tell you to get lost. <laughs> they might use other terms. Um or they'll say yes, but then they don't come back to therapy. Um, so stuff this. This is not what I want. I need something harder. I need something more firm, as it were, mm. um, not this wishy-washy stuff. And that's a fundamental misunderstanding of compassion. Mm. I mean, when people come to therapy, there's things that they don't like about themselves. We want you to engage with those things that you don't like about yourself. That takes courage. Yeah. You know, that takes an enormous amount of courage. So we're working with veterans with PTSD at the moment. Now, the amount of courage they've got is crazy. I mean, to go out and do what they do, it's phenomenal. Mm. But do they have emotional courage? Do you have the emotional courage to work with the emotions that you dislike having? That's the courage we're talking about. And that is hard. That is awfully hard to work with. And so when someone comes into therapy to work with this, you know, I'm often just left in a state of, you know, just – or that you're willing to openly talk about the things that bring you a great deal of hurt and mm. shame. I mean, that's intense. And How do we develop that self-compassion then and that courage to – because that's where it comes to. Yeah. Even when you're sitting there and trying to give loving kindness to others, mm, mm. I think it's part because you're not giving yourself compassion. Yeah, it could be. I mean, there is this, there is this sense that um, – you know, if you're going to be compassionate to others, you have to be compassionate to yourself. Now, there's no research to support that premise at all. Hmm. Um, in fact, there are many people who are excellent at being compassionate towards others, but they're absolutely shocking <laughs> at being compassionate to themselves. There is research that shows that. Um, that's for sure. Um, I mean, all you have to do, all you have to think about is like um, the perfectionistic doctor, for example. There are doctors that I've treated, for example, in therapy who I trust my life with. You know, I just know that they care so much about them, about me and my health and my um, outcome and success um, in the, on the operating table. But when it comes to treating themselves, they're awful. Hmm. They just they just treat themselves awfully. They're right. highly, highly critical of themselves. Um, and uh, they're often at risk for, for high rates of depression compared to other professions, for example. Um and so they can, they're awful at giving it to themselves at times, but they're excellent outwards. Vice versa, though, you'll certainly come across people who are excellent at giving it to themselves, but really struggle expressing it towards others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So, 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 well, there's got to be that balance in there. There's a bit of, it, it's complex, right? Um, so a bit of connection between the two. Yeah, often, it's, I mean, it's interesting, right? I mean, I, I think there most certainly is. Um, but sometimes for me, it's much easier being compassionate to a complete stranger, someone I know nothing about, mm. than a close friend or even a family member because mm. I've got a history with them. And 
sometimes when they're in distress, I'll, I'll look for it. Well, just, I won't look for it. It'll just come to mind. Yeah, but they did do this. Or, yeah, but, I mean, I've been telling them for ages they should have done this. So I'm making all these judgments about them, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> about, yeah. yeah. About the level of so I, I find it a tricky one for myself. Um, and so sometimes we can be awfully hard on the people who are closest to us because at the back of mind we have a sense that they're still going to be there anyway. Hmm. Um, whereas you, you, you come across someone who you don't know. So what we typically find when we engage in a formal compassion program, so there's a range of different compassion programs out there, some of the first things you hear straight back is, oh, I asked the person at the checkout today how they're going. Hmm. I mean, that's always what you hear. It's like um, I'd just like to do a study just looking at how many checkout people um, at, at a supermarket uh, how, how, how do they feel after compassion programs happened in the local area. <laughs> So many as an act, okay, I'll ask them how they're going as opposed to staying focused on my phone. Yeah, yeah. It is okay. a um, complex topic that you're researching and studying. Yeah, a lot of the time it's kind of trying to work out, and this is what we do in therapy a lot, are the people's fears and resistances um, to compassion. Mm. So a lot of people are really scared of it. Um, they're scared of it for, for different reasons. Um, they're scared that if they um, are compassionate, um, they'll be taken advantage of. Um, they're scared that um, if they allow compassion in, they'll break down and cry, and they can't have that because they're just keeping it together. They'll somehow lose the one up. Yeah, exactly, those sorts of things. Mm. Other people are resistant to compassion because there's a cost. You know, um, I, I won't win, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are resistant because they just don't see the point, you know. Um, what, I, I see no I'm not scared of it. I just don't see the point. I don't know how it's going to be useful. Mm. Of course, how's it going to help me? Mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you see this a lot um, uh, with men, for example. Um, but see, this is why, you know, this this sort of research and, and conversations like this too, I think, are, are really um, fundamental so we can give more information, help bring it into conversation, more mm. awareness out there and, um, I, you know, if compassion is about truly trying to alleviate some suffering and pain in the world, mm. um, that's a great thing. So we need to talk about it more. We need to try and understand it better. And yes, there's going to be fears there like anything, but yes. um, that can only be overcome by knowledge and information. Yes, 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 I agree. Maybe. <laughs> Not sure. James, how can people um, best reach out to you? I'm sure. Um, so, I mean, if they were just to type my name into Google with uh, University of Queensland, um, yep. uh, a hit will come up and then all my details, they can just click on that. So, um, and my email's all there and, and whatnot. And or the Compassionate Mind Research Group's another one. Um, that's our, our group in the school where we research um, uh, uh, compassion and we've got resources there. Uh, we also, um, the Compassionate Mind Foundation in the UK is fantastic. If anyone just typed that into Google, the amount of free resources on that website is just incredible. Compassionate Mind Foundation? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Um, there's a whole range of different uh, free information on that. And you've got your own website there too, James Gerby. Oh, do I? <laughs> that, I must have set that one up a while ago. <laughs> um, we do have a compassion. So like a cartoon dude on a red couch. Yeah, that's the one. That's the mm. one. Um, I think I set that up oh, maybe five years ago. I've forgotten about keeping that updated. So that's quite out of date, that one. Um, but we do have a compassion initiative website that a colleague of mine set up, Stan Steindl, um, and it's got a lot of different tip sheets on there as well. Um, so some of the tip sheets like that compassion under the duvet. Uh, okay. Uh, what was that website? Um, I, I just think 
Send us a link anyway if you get a chance. I'll stick it in the show notes. Oh, yeah, sure. That sounds great. And we're just launching a new journal. Um, So I work with uh, Professor Jim Doty at Stanford University in the U.S., um, and we're launching a new journal coming out shortly called the Compassion Journal, and that will have a whole host of um, resources on it as well. Okay. So Jim set up a, a Centre for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University. I went over and worked there in 2016 with him. Right, gotcha. Well, look, send us, um, yeah, send us a quick email with any links that you think of, and um, I'll stick them in the show notes too. Um, oh, guys, yeah, reach out to James if you have any questions for him. Uh, he's available there and um, offering, so that's a, that's a great opportunity to ask some more questions. And, James, thanks for coming on and sharing tonight. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the, the, the chat. You got some good takes and questions. It was great. It's, um, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting topic, and um, I'm, I'm surprised I, I managed okay tonight. Oh, um, but you're terrific. <laughs> considering I know I struggle at this time of the day, as I said. But, um, no, it's, it's, it's easy. You've, um, you're knowledgeable on it, so it's um, easy to be you know, curious about a topic that – someone who has so much passion about. So um, I appreciate you coming on. And guys, check out the show notes at thehiddenwhy.com. This is episode 776, I believe. So um, check it out and, um, yeah, we'll stick all the show notes uh, in the links there. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels, using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon